things that you'll end up doing in high school. And the question that you get asked all the time is, where are you going to go to college? Are you tired of that question yet? Where are you going to college? Where are you going to college? And then you start to apply for colleges, and then you apply to a lot of colleges. And I remember when I was applying for college, there was a couple of friends of mine that wanted to do the same thing as me. We were both looking into pastoral ministry, so we were going to study the Bible somewhere, and we applied to a bunch of different schools. And one of the schools that we, all of us, were applying to was Boyce College, which is the one my brother ended up going to. It's in Louisville, Kentucky. And we applied there, and I got my acceptance letter, and it was all good. And one of my friends that I was talking to was talking about the college, and he kept calling it Boyce Bible College. And he kept saying that, and I thought, okay, like, we're talking about the same place, but I just think he's got the wording wrong. He kept calling it Boyce Bible College. And then one day, I said to my friend Kyle, I said, hey, man, um, you keep calling it Boyce Bible College? It's just called Boyce College. And he's like, no, 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 it's called Boyce Bible College. And I'm like, no, it's not. So we literally look it up on our phone at that moment at Laguna Hills High School. We're sitting there looking at it, and it says Boyce College. And he looks at it, and he says, it's not where I applied to go to school. And he looks on his phone. He applied to go to Boise Bible College in Idaho. I just think that would have been hilarious if we would have got all the way to Louisville, and if we would have gone there, neither of us went there, but it would have been funny if we got all the way there, we're we're registering for classes, we think we're all good, and we both show up to Louisville, and he's never even applied to the school. He's accepted, he's paid the tuition and the money to go to Idaho, but not to that school. That would have been pretty funny, but kind of a little tragic. That would have been, um, I guess, I don't know, kind of a bad story if that really would have happened. But it didn't. We both ended up going to master's, so it didn't really matter. Um, But I just thought that was funny that he thought for a long time he was in, but the reality is he wasn't. Now, that might be funny, but there are other things that are similar that are tragic, that people think that they're in about something, but they're not. It reminds me of the scariest passage in all the Bible when Jesus talks to a bunch of people, many of whom thought that they were right with him. It's in Matthew chapter 7, and he tells them, you thought you knew me, you thought you were a disciple of me, but he tells them, depart from me, I never knew you. These people knew a lot about God, and perhaps they knew a lot about Jesus, but Jesus did not know them in a personal relationship. They made it all the way to the end, they were still attending church, they were still doing things for God, but they were deceived because they didn't really know God. If you think about the Christian life, it really boils down to that. If you think about your life in general, it really does boil down to that. Do you know God? That's the most important question about you. It's the most important question about me. Do you know God? It's not the same as knowing things about God, because I think all of you could answer some Bible questions, and all of you know something about God. Some of you know more than others, but that's not what I'm asking. I'm asking, do you know him personally? Is he your God? Can you claim that? If people are talking about God, can you say, well, I know God personally? that's challenging for us. So because that's a challenge and because this is so important, I want to turn back to the Old Testament and look at a passage where one man knew God and the rest of the people around him didn't. And we can learn something from this guy named Moses. So please open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 33. Exodus 33. This man knew God, so much so, Exodus 33.11 says he he knew God and they talked in a face-to-face relationship. Literally in Hebrew, it means mouth-to-mouth. Right? When you talk to someone face-to-face, right, the closest thing to them is your mouth, and the closest thing back to you is their mouth. Right? You're talking mouth-to-mouth. That's different than talking through different people. And it says about Moses and God, they had a special relationship that the rest of the Israelites just didn't have with God. He knew God, and he seeks to know God even more. 
A little background. If you know anything about the book of Exodus, what happens is God's people are in slavery in Egypt. And God does many miraculous things to bring them out. And he calls them clearly, you are my people, these Israelites. And he leads them all the way to a bunch of dead ends, if you know the story of Exodus. He leads them to the Red Sea. And they're stuck there with this massive army coming to take them out with nowhere to go. But God says, go right there. And he leads them through the Red Sea on dry ground. Afterwards, they worship God. And then they go to this mountain, Mount Sinai, and they're getting the law from God. And as they're getting the law from God, some of you know the story. As Moses is literally up on the mountain where God's giving the the 10 most important rules, the 10 commandments, and other things, do you know what the people of Israel did? While they were waiting for Moses, they didn't wait patiently. They knew something about God from their history. They grew up knowing who God was. They even saw God do miraculous things. But when God did not meet their demands the way they wanted to be met, they gave up on God. And what they did was, instead of worshiping the invisible God, they made this golden calf, this idol, so that they could worship God through a calf. But if you know the Ten Commandments, that literally breaks like the first three commandments. You're not supposed to make some statue and say that's God, because it's not God. That's what's just happened in Exodus 33. And God and Moses are talking, and what God says is pretty interesting. He says, I won't go with these people anymore. They're they're, they're done. They're so sinful. They will not follow me. I don't want to go with them anymore. Moses prays on their behalf and says, no, God, please, please come with us. Come with us. And then God says, fine, I'll be with you, Moses. And then Moses says, that's not what I'm asking, God. I don't want you just to be with me. I know you're with me. Will you go with all of us? Because that's what's needed for us to go into the promised land. And God says, okay, I will be with all of you. Look what Moses asks in verse 18. If you're in Exodus 33, look what Moses asks in verse 18. Moses said, please show me your glory. Interesting. He just had two prayers answered. So he's kind of on a hot streak right there. He's like, okay, I got, God's going to go with me. Okay, God's going to go with me and the Israelites. And then he asks something that you probably wouldn't have asked. After God makes a promise and says, okay, I'll be with you, he says, I want to see you. I want to know more about you. I want you to prove to me and to all these Israelites that you really are going to be with us. And this is what happens next. Look at verse 19. God said to him, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. So what he's going to do to Moses is he's going to show Moses a little tiny sneak peek of who he really is. And then he's not just going to give him a little bit. He's going to give him a lot about who he is. He's going to say stuff about himself. So God, it's going to say next, passes before Moses in this weird way, in his visible manifestation, which is kind of interesting and strange, but he hides Moses in the rock. When Moses says, God, I want to know you, God says, yeah, I'll show myself to you. I will show you who I am, and then I'm going to tell you about me, because that's the most important. As he goes on, Drop down to verse 6 of the next chapter, Exodus 34, verse 6. God has just showed Moses his glory, showed him what he looks like in a sense. Not his face, but his back, which is another weird thing, hard passage, obviously. But I think what it means is if you walked by somebody and they didn't see your face, but they saw your back from really far away, it's like they're getting a little glimpse of you, even though they're not seeing the fullness of of who you are. They're just kind of seeing a little bit. And after that happens, look what God says. This is number six, verse six. It says, the Lord passed before him, before Moses, and proclaimed, 
And this right here is the most impactful and one of the most important verses in all the Bible right here. It's the most quoted verse all throughout the Old Testament, these verses right here, what God says about himself. God said this, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation, period, end quote. So that's what God says about himself. If you wanted to ask God, God, what do you like? God, I want to know who you are. This is what he says. This is the most famous section in the book of Exodus because God tells us what he's like. God does not have to tell you what he's like. He is willing to tell you what he's like. Although he hasn't shown the same glory to you as he's shown to Moses, he has certainly shown you a lot of what he's done in creation. Then verse 8, look what Moses does immediately. It's the response we should all have. If we understand who God is, we start to learn about him in his word. We start to experience what he does in this world. Verse 8 says, Moses quickly bowed his head towards the earth and worshiped. That's the right response to when God shows us who he is. Now, Jesus says in Matthew 7 that that's the defining characteristic about whether or not you're going to spend life with him or life without him, whether you know God. What we talked about last week was whether or not you were going to be all in to follow Jesus. He demands your whole life. He calls us to submit and surrender and be his followers. Well, this section of this adulting series is all about this, whether or not you know God. And not just whether or not you know him, but once you do know God, what it means to grow in a relationship knowing the God who made you. That's such a big topic. We can only scratch the surface today. But I've got three things that I think really capture what it means to know God. The first one, I think, comes from verse 18 of the last chapter. Moses says, show me your glory. He says, I want to know you. I've seen you do amazing things in the past. God, show yourself to me. I want to see you. I want to know who you are. Point number one, really simple. I want you to seek God. That's the first step to all this. I want you to actually seek God. Now, for many of you, this is simple. You know this. You have sought God in the past. Maybe you can look at a time in your life. Maybe you were younger, maybe in junior high. Maybe you were at a revival. We said, that's the time I really started to seek God. I went to church. I played the games. I heard the Bible stories. But there's a difference when you, in your heart, decide, I am going to seek God. I want to know God. That's very different than knowing about God. Problem is, people who say that at one point don't always follow through. I don't know if you've noticed that, but there are a lot of people who say they want to know God, who seek God for a little bit, and then stop seeking God. I think that's really what the whole nation of Israel had just done. If you know the context, what we just talked about, the golden calf, the people sought God. They said, we're going to serve God. And Moses said, are you sure? And the people said, yes. And then a couple days later, they give up because God doesn't show himself in the way they want. God doesn't say what they want. Exodus 32.6 describes what the people of Israel did when they decided to worship this golden calf. They, they didn't want God on his terms. They wanted to worship God how they wanted to worship him. They wanted to have the blessings of God with the lifestyle that they wanted to choose. Exodus 32.6 says this, the people early the next morning after they made this golden calf and started to worship it. It says they rose up early the next day. They're devoted to this thing. They offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings to this false god. And then it says, and the people sat down to eat and drink 
and rose up to play. That's a euphemism for what the Bible calls a party lifestyle. They said, I want to do whatever I want to do. Eating, drinking, getting drunk, rising up to play involves a variety of horrible, grotesque things that even happen today in our world, which are related to giving yourself over to do whatever you want. It's interesting. They just saw what God did, and they gave up. That's why I know if the Israelites could see God take them through the Red Sea, it's certainly possible for us to grow up in church and then abandon our search for God. I know it's possible for many of us to be in these chairs and then to not seek God anymore. Most people like Israel, not seeking him, rather seeking whatever they want. And I I guess that's kind of the question um, for you, and I know it's a big question, but I want you to think about it. Like, what do you seek with your life? Like, what's your life about? Uh, If you were going to boil it down, I know that's a weird question and it's a hard one to answer and it maybe takes some thought, but if you thought, what is my life about? Like, what am I seeking? Am I seeking to go to a particular college? Am I seeking to grow in a skill in in my sport or in my music? That's what my life is headed towards. What am I seeking? Am I seeking approval with people? Am I seeking to be liked? Am I seeking to be popular? Am I seeking to be famous and a celebrity? Like, what is the, the aim of your life? All of you are a little bit different, but what this text is telling us to do, and I think what all of God's word is aiming us towards is our our search, our pursuit in life needs to be after knowing God. Jeremiah talks about what it looks like to abandon God in one of the most famous passages that he writes. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 12 and 13, Jeremiah writes to these people, they did a very similar thing. They grew up with God, they heard about God, they knew the Bible, but they abandoned God. He says in Jeremiah 2, 12, be appalled, O heavens. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. There's two things that are evil about not seeking God or seeking something else. Here's what they are, he says. He says, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. That's the first thing that's bad about serving idols. You're forsaking God. God made you and me to worship him. He made you and me for himself. Like, that's the reason you exist. If people ask the question, why am I here? What am I doing here? The answer for every person should be this. God made me, and I'm made to serve and worship God. That should be the answer for every last person. But here's the problem. 95% of people on this planet don't do that. They don't want to seek God. They don't want to worship him. That's not what their life is about. So you can't just say, oh, Jeremiah, that's to the Israelites. No, I think this is a general thing, too, for anyone who's made by God, which that's every last one of us. I'm made by God. I'm made to worship God. You're made by God. You're made to worship God. I know that's simple, basic, elementary school stuff, but you have to remember that when it comes to idolatry. So Jeremiah says the first thing that's wrong is you're forsaking the living God, the fountain of life. If you think that anything that you like in this life, anything that you enjoy, any good gift, anything that's pleasurable to you, guess what? God gave it to you. He gave it to you. He let you have it. He provided it for you. He's the fountain of living water for you, just like he was to Israel. But then he says this. Not only do people forsake God, they also hewed out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. That's an Old Testament picture. What they do is they dig stuff in the ground to put their water in. You can imagine if you didn't have a faucet, you needed somewhere to put your water. So they they dig these holes and they'd fill it with maybe tar or some things that would kind of keep the water in so they could pour their water in there. And what God is saying is, you've got a fountain of living waters, a spring that's always open in me. But the problem that all of us are bent towards 
is although we can know God and seek God and have all of his goodness, what we often do is we dig these holes and put all the little scraps of water, all the little things that we can get in this life into them, and and it's a broken vessel. It's going to drown out all the water. The water is going to go away. It doesn't even hold what you put into it. That's the evil. And God says in Jeremiah chapter 2, you need to turn from that. I think that's a lot. That's similar to where a lot of us are right now. You know God, you know things about God, you've grown up in church, but you're maybe seeking with your life to be satisfied in things that will not satisfy you. You're pouring all your life, so to speak, into things that will drain out. Pouring all your life into popularity, and it's not going to satisfy you. Pouring all your life into your friendships, and well, it's not going to satisfy you. Pouring all your life into your music, into your sports, it's not going to satisfy you. God says, I'm the only one that can satisfy you. The problem is, just like the Israelites, uh, we can't seek God on our own. We can't just come up to him and know him um, because of our sin. When Isaiah, who was the most righteous man at his time, when he saw a glimpse of God, you might know this story, Isaiah chapter 6, when he sees God, instead of clapping his hands and saying, yes, finally I see God, do you know what Isaiah does? He says he falls down like a, like a dead man, and he says something about himself. He says, woe is me. I'm, I'm cursed. I'm, I'm going to hell, is what he says. I'm, I, I deserve to go to hell. That's what he says. Um, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips. We're all sinners. I'm a sinner, and the people around me are sinners, and my eyes have just seen God. Um, we can't just go up to God on our own. That's why the New Testament presents Jesus as the ultimate solution to this problem right here. You can seek God because Jesus lets you seek God. You can actually have a relationship with God because Jesus, who is God, came to be the mediator. That's what that word means, mediator, standing in between. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, 1 Timothy 2, 5 says that there is one God and there's one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. We talk about Jesus in the past tense, okay, because he did his work in the past tense, some of his work in the past tense. But if you were living in the time of the Exodus, Jesus and the solution to this problem would be a future thing. That God's going to take care of it one day. I don't know how he's going to take care of it, but he's going to take care of it one day. You know, you and I actually live in the most blessed time because we can look back and see what Jesus did for his people. And we can know with confidence that we can approach God. Those of you that are sophomores and juniors and seniors, you just got done studying the book of Hebrews. How often in the book of Hebrews... Does it say, you can now come approach God because you have a high priest. You have a righteous person that can stand between you and God. You can go to God now, although you don't deserve it, although I'm not worthy on my own, and you're not worthy on your own to know God. Because of what Jesus did, you can come to God. You can know God. That's That's the story of the Bible in a nutshell, basically. That there's a holy God that made you and me, we've all sinned, and we can get to know that God through Jesus. That's why righteous people have always prayed things like this. I want, to, I want to know God. I want to seek God. Moses says, show me your glory. David said things like this in Psalm 27, 4. He says, one thing I've asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. He says later in Psalm 63, he says, oh God, you're my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there's no water, like Lake Havasu, when I need water, right? That's how I feel. I need God that much. It's a good analogy just because, like, think about how much you know your need when you're in danger, right? When it's hot, you know you need stuff. Um, 
some of us don't recognize our need to know God. Some of us think we're fine. You think you're fine with whatever you're doing in life. I'll just tell you, you might be fine right now, but you won't be fine in the future. And the only reason you're fine right now is because the God that you're rejecting is upholding your life. The moment he decides not to, it's over. That's why running to God in surrender is our only hope. We talked about that a little bit last week. I, I hope you remember that where we said, look, we're put in this world and you're a sinner and I'm a sinner and we really don't have that many options, right? You can choose to reject all this, but that doesn't change the fact that there's a God who made you and that we're sinful and we need to be right with him. And the only way is through Jesus. He goes on, Psalm 63 verse three says, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. That idea of God's steadfast love being better than life actually comes from the passage we're about to look at. Back in Exodus 34, verse 6, God tells us about himself. So if we're going to know God, if we're going to seek God, Exodus 34 tells us what he's like. And I do want you to consider how important that is, that God actually tells us something about what he's like. Didn't have to do that. Could have left us in the dark about what he's like. But the only way for you to really know God is for you to hear what he says. And, and how can you hear what he says if you weren't there when he said it? Well, through God's word. God's word is going to be the solution for us to see, okay, how can I know what God is like? That's the second here, second thing here. Um, seeking God is the first step to knowing God. You have to see your need for God and seek him, want to know him, and realize that you can only seek him through Jesus. But the second thing the Bible presents us with is that in this process of knowing God, you and I need to study God. That's the second thing. Point number two, I want you to study God. He gives us so much about himself here that I really want to go through all these things, and you got some subpoints there, things that God is like. He describes himself in some detail here. What's God like? Problem is, for some of us, we, we know something of what God's like, but we don't typically go to the Word to see what he's like. Some of us say things like this, and maybe you've caught yourself saying this. Um, I don't think... God would disapprove of this. I don't think God would really do this. And we say things like that, and sometimes that's informed by Scripture, but most of the time, that's just informed by our perception of what we think God would be like. It reminds me of birthdays and Christmas and Father's Day's coming up. Do you have Father's Day's coming up next week? So just a real pro tip, you gotta get something for your dad next week. Father's Day's coming up next week. Um, when you're buying stuff for Father's Day, Father's Day's the hardest thing. You know that, right? Because your dad already has whatever your dad needs. And when your dad wants something, he doesn't ask you for it. So Father's Day can be kind of tricky, right? So sometimes some dads want to put together like the wish list or whatever. But I want you to imagine your dad has a wish list, okay? He has things that he said, hey, I'm purposely not going to buy these things because I want you to buy them for me so that you know you're going to get me something good, right? And maybe it's little cheap stuff on Amazon. My dad's really into like the little um, trinkets, on Amazon, like little gadgets and devices. If you like look up uh, new gadgets on YouTube and you watch those videos, like he has most of those things. Uh, so that's kind of what he's into. So I kind of know I'm in, on safe ground buying Father's Day things for him. But I want you to imagine your dad gives you a list and says, hey, here are the things that I want. And instead of taking that list, you're like, you know what I think he needs? You fill it in the blank with whatever you want, right? You know, I, I think he, he really, he really needs, this is a dumb example, but he really needs a letterman's jacket. That's what he really needs. You're like, what? Doesn't, no, he doesn't need a let. No, that's what you want. And we do that sometimes, right? My wife and I were just talking about how she loves surprises. 
and I hate surprises. And the first like two years of our relationship, she always tried to surprise me. And every time, I think it only worked out one time. The rest of like, okay, this is, I won't tell you what I did, but um, it, was kind of, it was kind of a bad boyfriend move, so I can't approve of this, but I think she bought tickets to something that I'm like, I really don't want to do that. Can we not do that if it's for my birth? And then we didn't go. <laughs> we sold the tickets. Um, yeah, sorry. Um, hey, don't do that, guys. Okay, that's a bad example. Um, don't do that. But it was to like a show or something that she wanted to go to. And we do that, right? I've, I've bought things for my wife. I've bought golf clubs for my wife, right? I've bought watches for my wife and she doesn't wear, like I buy her things that I want because like, oh, you know, we could kind of, you know, play golf together. It's like, that's not really a birthday thing, you know? Maybe that's a, my birthday thing. I should buy her stuff on my birthday, but not her birthday. Because you don't want to buy things that they want, right? And, and what that shows is we oftentimes want people to be in our own image. And that's what we do with God sometimes. If people say, I think God is like this, what they're really doing is just taking their needs and their wants and their desires and then kind of making a God that fits that, right? Here's the thing. We can't do that with the God of the Bible. When we do that, that's called idolatry. That's what these people of Israel just got in trouble for. So let's look at what God is like. First thing here in verse six, he calls himself the Lord, the Lord. That word is significant in the Bible. If you know anything about the Lord, it means the I am or Yahweh. It talks about how God existed on his own. He wasn't created by anything. He wasn't created by anyone. He had no starting point. One thing you can write down, first subpoint there is I want you to know that God is the eternal and uncreated creator. God is the eternal and uncreated creator. That's what the word Lord means. That's what the word I am or Yahweh means. When Lord is in all caps in your Bibles, you know you're using that special word, Yahweh, God's personal name. Here's what the rest of the Bible says about this. A couple verses for you. I want to give you as many, I'm going to give you a lot of verses here, so just know that. Um, Two verses for you on this one. Psalm 90, verse 2. Psalm 90, verse 2, here's what it says. This is Moses, actually, who writes this. It says, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Question, is there ever a time in all of eternity where God is not the God who's the creator, who's the sovereign God? Is there ever a time where he's not that? Answers, no. Is there ever a time when Jesus, the son, is not fully God? Answer, no. He is always God from everlasting to everlasting. Even the New Testament talks about how Jesus is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. Jesus is self-existent also, not some secondary being. Isaiah 40 Verse 28, here's what God says there. He says, have you not known, which it's funny, it sounds like it should be an obvious thing. Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the eternal God, the always existing God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint and he does not grow weary and his understanding is unsearchable. Okay? That's our God, the Lord. That's how he introduces himself first. What does he say next? He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God gracious and merciful, slow to anger. I want to take all those together and think about what that means. Second thing I want you to write down is this. God is compassionate and patient. God's compassionate and he's patient. He feels for his people even though he could be so distant and so removed that he doesn't care about your little person problems. Okay? But here's what the scriptures present God as. A God who is compassionate, who feels with you and for you. The more important a person is, uh, the less you expect them to feel for you, right? 
You expect your friends to feel for you, and you expect maybe even your parents to feel for you when times are down, but you don't expect your principal at school to feel for you. You don't really expect your teacher at school. You don't expect, I don't know, like a celebrity to really feel for you. Like that would be an amazing thing if an important person felt for you. Here's what God's word says. God is compassionate. He's gracious. He's merciful. When we sin, just think what we deserve when we sin. We always sin in his presence. We deserve to be zapped the moment we sin. But what does God do? He, he doesn't give us the wrath we deserve. He's merciful. He's slow to anger. If you know the story of the Bible, how many times does God get angry and hold in that anger and wrath and not pour it out? Like all the time. Like generation after generation, he does not give the people what they deserve. For you, for me, I think of my, my own testimony. I came in weak after week. I sat in the dumb plastic chairs week after week in the narrow and true north. And I did not know God. And God was merciful. He was gracious. He was slow to anger. He could have taken me out. He should have taken me out, but he didn't. He was gracious and merciful. Romans 2.4 says that, asks a question, do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience? Do you think that because God has not punished you, you're not doing wrong? Some of us do that when we sin. We think, well, we didn't get punished. Nothing bad happened, so I can keep doing that. Bible says, do you assume that because God's merciful, that really means that your sin's okay? He says, no, 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 that's not how it is. He says, you should know this, that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, right? The fact that God does not give us the, the wrath we deserve immediately, that doesn't mean, oh, God's fine with it. It's a way that God is trying to bring you to salvation and tell you, hey, you need to repent. It's a mercy that he's not zapping us right away. The Old Testament says this, Psalm 103, verse 13. Psalm 103, verse 13 says, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Right? You have a right relationship with God. You recognize who he is. Here's what God does. He has compassion. He cares about you in a similar way to when, you know, when I see Eden Hope, when I see the little girl right in the stroller, I'm like, oh, Eden Hope, right? And I'm, I'm happy and I'm excited. And when she cries, I feel sad, right? That compassion, that fatherly compassion is the, the illustration that the psalmist uses here in Psalm 103. It's like that compassion that a father has for his kid, a good father has for his kid. It says that's the compassion God has for you and I when we sin and when we hurt. Right? We don't deserve that, but that's what God does. He goes on, he says, God knows our frame. He remembers that we're just dust. He remembers how weak we are. Next thing here, it says, God is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, okay? The next thing I want you to write down is this. God is loyal to his promises. God's loyal to his promises. I could give you a lot of verses for this, but I just want to tell you that this concept that God is, has steadfast love is really one of the main themes of the entire Old Testament, that when people sin, God is good to them anyway. He keeps his promises, when people say, God, you made this promise, God says, yes, I did. I'll answer that prayer. You're right, I did make that promise. He's loyal in his love. We're very fickle in our love. We are willing to show love to somebody, right? We see this a lot, right? We're willing to show love or care or concern for somebody until they wrong me. Once they wrong me, I'm giving up on them. I'm done 
with them. You know what this means? God's steadfast love that he keeps for thousands, God is sinned against all the time, and he continues to show love. Does that elevate your view of God? Now you start to, when you're wronged, right, and this is helpful, when you're wronged by other people, and it's really, really hard for you to forgive others, right, that should teach you and I a lesson about the forgiveness that God has for us. How often is God sinned against? How often is God wronged? How often is he offended by your behavior and by your neighbor's behavior and by whoever's behavior? All the time, but he's gracious and he's slow to anger and he shows steadfast love. Even us, we're supposed to be the Christians, but we continue to sin, but he shows steadfast love. He shows his faithfulness. Next thing here, he says, he forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. That's related, but I want you to write this down. The fourth thing here, uh, God is ready to fully forgive. God is ready to fully forgive. This is unique to our God. Uh, Every other system, every other man-made religion does not have a God who is ready to fully pardon and forgive. They're not. They might say they are, but they're not, and here's why. Because there's always these steps and things and works that these people have to do, but God's word says something different, that you have to go approach God in humility, and with faith you need to trust that he will forgive you. And by what Jesus did for you, by putting your faith in him, God does it without a work on your behalf. That's unique. Isaiah 55, verse 6 says this, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. New Testament echoes similar things. Paul does in 2 Corinthians 6. He says, today is the day of salvation. Similar thing here. Call upon while he's near. Look, look what it means to call upon God. This is Isaiah 55, 7. This is Old Testament stuff. But listen to what it says. It's the same message that Jesus gave. It's the same message that John the Baptist gave. It's the same message that Paul gave. It's the same message that your pastors give today. Listen to what it says. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. It's the same message. Give up your sin. Repent. Turn away from it. Leave it at the door. Come to God and he'll forgive you based on what Jesus did. 1 Peter 3, 18 says, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. That's what the sermon's all about. Being with God, knowing God personally. How does it happen? Well, when Jesus brings the unrighteous people to God, he dies for their sin. And what it says here is being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. That's how you and I can know God. Jesus has to bring us to God. If you're not forgiven for your sins right now, if you know that you're living in your sin and you're unrepentant, the Bible's very clear about this. Let the wicked person forsake their way. The unrighteous man's thoughts return to the Lord. Trust him. The New Testament adds to that and says, look at this. You got to trust in Jesus for salvation. He's the solution. The Old Testament pointed forward to Jesus. We look back to Jesus, but the point is Jesus is the solution to our sin problem. That's good, but the last thing in Exodus 34, 7, after it says all these seemingly positive things about God, that he's righteous and he's good and he shows love, the one thing that sinners don't like very much is this last part. Where after it says he's willing to forgive, it also says this in verse 7, he will by no means clear the guilty. If, if you're going to continue in your sin, and if you're, you're going to reject his lordship, and you're not going to turn from your sin, and you're going to continue to live in it, here's what it says, uh, he'll by no means clear the guilty. He has to punish. He will punish. 
part of his good character to punish people who do what's wrong. Last thing you can write down there is God is the righteous judge. Those are just five quick things that this passage says. We could have said more. That's just my summary of these things, that God is the righteous judge. Think about what you just wrote down. If you're going to study God, here's a good place to start, that God is the eternal and uncreated creator. How much time can you spend studying that? A lot of time. How deep can your knowledge go on that? It can go very deep. God is compassionate and patient. God is loyal to his promises. God is ready to fully forgive. And God is the righteous judge. That's a pretty good summary of how God describes himself in scripture, in everywhere in scripture, but he gives it in very succinct form here, verses six and seven. He said there's three things because the response to all this that Moses gives is the exact right one. When he knows who God is and has this experience of seeing God in a unique way, but then when he hears who God is, his response is quick, it's immediate, and it's one that we should follow to. It says he took his face and he put it on the ground. That's what bowing down means. Um, You do that when you've just been overwhelmed by something. And when you want to show the maximum amount, amount of honor to a king, that's what you do. You get, you get down as low as you can go, and it's like he's laying down on the ground. Um, that posture that his body did reflects what's going on in his heart, right? So the scripture does not say that you have to bow down in some weird fashion and form with your body to God, but it, what it does say very clearly is you and I need to have a humility when it comes to God and a worshipful heart of God. When we seek God, we find God in our study of God, and he shows himself to us, our response has to be worshiping God. That's the third thing. I want you to worship God. Seek God, study God, worship God. That's as simple as I think we can put it here today. If you're going to know God, seeking God, studying God, worshiping God. You worship whatever your heart thinks is best whatever you seek. And that's what we talked about at the beginning, right? If you seek things with your whole heart, those are the things that you're worshiping. Those are the things that you're taking and putting at the top of your list. If you were going to make a worship list right now, I wonder what would make it if we're honest. What are the things that kind of rise to the top of our worship lists? Scripture says that naturally, ourselves are usually near the top of the list, if not the very top. That we worship ourselves, our desires, our impulses, our appetites, our want to be loved, our want to be liked by other people. That usually kind of rises to the top. And some other things might rise to the top for you too, but let this scripture in Exodus where Moses says, show me your glory, and where he starts to understand something, let it drive you to this right here. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28. Hebrews 12, 28 says, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. You guys just study this in the book of Hebrew, so you remember more about this. It says, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. wonder what reverence and awe looks like for you. There are people probably that you show some reverence and awe towards. Right? In some little ways, you show that to people that you're nervous to talk to, right? Reverence and awe is kind of that like, you know, ooh, step back. I don't, know, I don't know if I'm comfortable 
coming up and, and, and talking to that person because they're important or they're famous or they're good at a particular sport or they're, they're, they're expert at music or whatever. Someone that you respect a lot, like there's this sense of like, ooh, I don't know if I can go up to them and talk to them. That is the posture we should have towards God, which might sound contradictory, right? Because didn't we just talk about we should seek God? We should get to know God. Well, there's an element for all of us where we need to continue having the right sense of fear and awe of God. Now, this worship is something that we're going to do often in True North, and we're going to make it a focus here in True North, but it's something that needs to happen all the time for you. In fact, 2 Corinthians 3.18 says that there's something that happens when you worship God. There's something that happens to your heart and my heart when we start to seek God, study God, and worship God, and it's this, that your heart starts to change. You start to look more like Christ in your life, and sometimes some of you have wondered, man, why am I not growing in this particular area of my life? Well, one of the answers might be, maybe we're not seeking God, studying God, and worshiping God. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says that when you behold the Lord with unveiled face, which is a reference to Moses, once you start understanding more of who Jesus is, right, what happens to you is now your character starts to look like his. Your words will start to reflect his. Your heart for people will grow more tender just like his. That's what happens when we worship God. I said at the beginning that this is something that is a lifelong pursuit, something that's eternal. It reminds me of the fact that nobody even remembers who was the fifth grade ASB president. Do you remember who was the president of your fifth grade ASB class? Do you remember? Was it you? Was it, were any of you the ASB president in fifth grade? Oh, okay. Just one. Um, question for you. Do you remember back in elementary school or junior high how important it was to go campaign for, like, the person, like, your friend? Like, are you going to vote for them? Like, that was the most important thing, okay? Looking back, like, you don't even remember. Like, that was such a small deal, especially now, because that pursuit, although it was important for, like, a tiny bit, it wasn't that important. And now as you're more mature, you can see that, okay? What I'm presenting to you today, this text about knowing God, you will never look back at it like your fifth grade ASB who was president, okay? It will always be significant because you know that knowing God and growing a relationship with God is one of the things that you will do for eternity and you will never finish. There's a lot of things that you're going to finish. You're going to finish high school. You're going to finish college maybe. You're going to maybe get married. You're maybe going to have kids. You're going to die. You're going to go to heaven. You're going to be in God's kingdom. You're going to be in the new Jerusalem. You're going to have whatever job you have. You're going to complete tasks in 10,000 years. You're going to do all that stuff, but you know what you're never going to finish? Knowing God relating to God. Like if we can start to get a bigger view of what this is right here to know and worship God, it's an accurate view of what this is. There's nothing more important for us than to know God because it's eternal. Let's pray and seek God even right now. Let's pray. God help us with this. We know that our hearts tend towards what the Israelites did to give up on you because we can't see you face to face like Moses did. Pray that for those of us who do know you, I pray that we would grow in our knowledge of you. Pray for the people that don't, that they would not look back like that Matthew 7 crowd, thinking they knew you when in reality they didn't. Pray that all of us would seek you, even the Christians and non-Christians and everyone who doesn't really know where they stand with you. I pray that we'd seek you every day, that we'd seek you in prayer, that we'd come to you asking to know you better, that we'd even pray verbatim this prayer, show me your glory. 
that we'd ask the same thing of you. We know that you've shown Moses your glory, and you know that we know that you will answer that prayer. You make promises in your word that you come and you invade the hearts of those who are humble and you're near to the brokenhearted. So I pray that we would trust your word and what you say and that we would grow in our relationship with you. We'd know you better. It's the most important thing about us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.